1: Morning.
2: Good morning. Good morning. You I mean to wish me a good morning? What do you mean that it is a good morning, whether I want it or not?
1: Please go away. Let me sleep for
3: the love of
4: God. <sighs> that would be the sound of 90s thrillers right there, mate. Classic.
5: <laughs> I mean, and that is like... <laughs> What epitomises the 90s thriller more than 7?
4: Well, you know, exactly. Techno, industrial electronic. And that's how you know you're not in the 80s. <laughs> I hated it so much. <laughs> well, we do have Bruce Beresford coming up on the show, like the Bruce Beresford. And, and the reason that we're playing this music is because he's going to be talking about the upcoming Blu-ray release for his movie Double Jeopardy, a 90s thriller.
5: I love that film. I love, like, Bruce is, is, is like a super nice guy. Um, I, ha- I had the, the, the pleasure of helping to organize the, uh, commentary on the Breaker Morant, uh, release that Umbrella just, just, uh, uh, put out. And he is a, he was a, uh, kind of a super nice guy. And, like, th- that commentary is really kind of entertaining. Like, he was kind of against it, <laughs> against doing it because he's like, I can't remember anything. But, um, the com- the commentary disproves that. Yes. Like he's, you know, well, he's very kind of, very smart, very entertaining guy. People
4: are certainly going to find out what a charming man he is. But I will tell you what, dude, the, the the temptation is is all too strong. You ready for it?
1: <laughs>
4: I mean, geez, like this might have been a much lovelier show if we if he
5: was re releasing Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be I think a different a different themed show, that's for sure. But he like simultaneously uh, improved and set back the uh, uh, racial relations in the United States in the one film.
4: <laughs> well, this music does make me want to take a lovely drive. Perhaps you could be my hoke?
5: Uh yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do it. I was going to get myself into a bit of trouble. Ben, you're my best friend. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well, anyway, everybody, it's that time of week again. You've hit play on Good Movie Monday. We are the weekly movie show presented by Fakeshemp.net, home of the nerdy cinematic ramblings. It's a pleasure to have you with us again. My name is Glenn Cochran, and if I were a Bruce Beresford movie, I'd probably be a fringe dweller. And with me is Ben Halwig, who I can only assume would be eating party pies at Don's
5: party. How are you, mate? I'm good. Yeah, that's true. I couldn't you think w- of anything you else. You wouldn't say that if Gough Whitlam was Prime Minister. <laughs> oh, sorry, that's... That's Ron's Barney. <laughs> I just couldn't
4: think of anything else to tie in there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Well,
5: I'd be a good man in Africa. You would be a good man in Africa. I could, be a, I could be a good man in Africa. For the cannibals? For the cannibals, yeah. Am I allowed to say that? No. <laughs> For the the witch doctors. Yes. What'd you tell them? It's, it's in the film. It's not... <laughs> it's in the film. It's just... Sean Connery is in the film. It's in the film. You know, there's witch doctors. It's
4: very easy to forget that there are certain references about movies that we make on this show that are just common knowledge to us, but there's more likely a lot of people listening that have no idea what the fuck we're talking about. Um, but don't worry, we're going to sort of talk a little bit about Bruce soon and give them all a little bit more perspective in case they're lost in the mix right now. <laughs> but um, if you are here for Jarrett Garn. We've got you covered, and he's going to be along in a moment, as well as our stable of friends in their weekly segments, Guillermo Troncoso, Adam Ross, and the boys from Bonehead Weekly. And Chloe's going to be on a bit of a sabbatical, and we'll explain that in a little bit. But anyway, all right. The upcoming release of Double Jeopardy. We're going to turn our attentions to 90s
5: thrillers. It was a pretty good era for thrillers, don't you reckon? It was, and I really, I really, really liked Double Jeopardy. Yeah, I know. Me too. When that movie came out, like thoroughly enjoyed it like it was i think it was the first movie that i ever noticed bruce greenwood in even though he was in stuff like bikini shop and (laughs) and like a whole bunch of stuff but he's so good as the kind of slimy husband and uh yeah tommy lee jones it's funny like going back and watching it again like you realize that that tommy lee jones is almost an unnecessary character in the film like he he's his character does not drive the narrative at all (laughs) But he's just so kind of watchable. He's just
4: there doing what Tommy Lee Jones did in the nineties.
5: Yeah, kind of <laughs> kind of grumpy and competent. Like it was very much a kind of uh, you know, the fugitive yep. US Marshals kind of, you know, character.
4: But look, the the nineties is a really interesting era for for thrillers because you kind of had the flow over 80s style of thrillers like your pacific heights and single white female for example and then you had like the emergence of all the sort of cyber tech ones like hackers and the net and like an
5: and
4: and an assortment of all those ones absolutely was um yeah lawnmower man was 90s wasn't it
5: yeah it's like they discovered the technology yeah that's what that's (laughs) really what happened in the 90s they discovered the technology, and it caused more problems, I think. Than, uh, <laughs> but I mean, it, it allowed the two thousands and the two thousand and tens to be, to be pretty pretty great. Yeah, it allowed them to refine it. The nineties yeah. is such a weird period, though, because when you think about it, it it's not like the the eighties had like a clearly defined fashion. It had a clearly defined kind of political uh, ethos. Mm-hmm. It was it was a definitely it was a very defined decade. Whereas the 90s seems to have been more of a transitional decade. Absolutely. You know, that doesn't really have anything that that really defined it. And you can go, like, I mean, I look back now and I'm like, yeah, maybe the 90s were a bit cooler than, uh, than I thought they were at the time. But it is hard. Like, you couldn't describe it. You couldn't say, like, you couldn't say, you know, flock of seagulls hair, <laughs> shoulder pads, you know, kind of greed is good. <laughs> kind of like you can about the 80s and, and the 70s and the 60s and the 50s they all had like these really definable moments whereas the 90s you, were well, you like uh like uh, tracksuit pants with two two lines down the down the down the side
4: I think that... i think the 90s was much more of a defining era for music than it was for films because like not only did i say like you know pacific heights and all those movies taking sort of cues from the 80s and then you had the cybertext but then you also had you know um movies like seven and these gritty Kiss the Girls type of serial killer movies That sort of emerged in the in the 90s So it's just a real mixed bag And like the options for us to talk about it is huge
5: Yeah, massive
4: Well anyway, they're going to find out what we recommend In a minute, but first let's uh, take a listen to Jarrett And see what's coming out uh, on Home Ant This week
0: Hey this is Jarrett and welcome to PE Class. Starting off with a little news this week, Roadshow are releasing Warner's Gravity on 4K Ultra HD on October 13th. This is great news as it means you can finally take that Diamond Edition off your eBay watch list. It's hideously overpriced and now the 4K Ultra HD will have that Dolby Atmos track, that reference quality Dolby Atmos track you've been chasing. Universal, Sony Pictures Home Entertainment are going to release a slew of catalogue titles to 4K Ultra HD locally on October 27th and those titles include Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim vs The World, John Carpenter's The Thing, Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead and Brian De Palma's Carlitos Way. Yep that's right you'll be able to see Sean Penn in that wig in 4K Ultra HD. Then Umbrella Entertainment will be releasing the Spirit Brothers Undead and the foreign feature The Beast on Blu-ray as part of their Beyond Genres line on November 3rd. On that very same date, Umbrella will also release Sion Sono's Prisoners of the Ghostland with Nicolas Cage. However, I don't have confirmation at this stage whether it's getting a Blu-ray release or whether it will be DVD only. Now on to this week's releases, first up from Roadshow we've got the Hitman's Weiss Bodyguard coming out on Blu-ray and DVD. I spoke about this film about a month ago, I caught it theatrically, I enjoyed it, it's very much more of the same. Sadly it's not getting a 4K Ultra HD release locally but never fear as you'll be able to import the US release. That's right Lionsgate released it in the US last week and currently it's sitting around uh, probably about the mid 40s but if history's proven one thing it's that Lionsgate dropped their 4K releases within about 3-5 to five weeks of its initial release. So if you want to pay somewhere between the mid 20s to the early 30s wait it out like me. Then Universal Sony Pictures Home Entertainment are releasing a few Studio Canal titles this week. They include Spiral on Blu-ray and DVD. This is the latest instalment in the Saw franchise. As I was to understand I thought it was going to be a refresh of the franchise but really it's just another sad sequel and it's got Chris Rock in the lead and he's pretty piss poor in this one which is disappointing because the guy can do drama. If you've seen Top 10 you know the guy can do drama. However this film just is just it's so subpar and uh, it pains me to say that I'll probably pick it up to complete the Saw collection but that said I'm going to import the 4k from the US but I'm going to wait it out probably closer to Black Friday as I'm thinking I'd probably prefer to pay somewhere between 10 dollars to 20 dollars for this film given that I'm not going to probably watch it anytime soon. Then also out from Studio Canal and this one's coming out in 4k Ultra HD as well as Blu-ray and DVD is Akira Kurosawa's Ran. Now I spoke about this one recently I went through the special features in the news so I'm not going to do that again all I'm going to say is it's an essential purchase I'll be picking it up. Then finally coming to 4K Ultra HD locally is Paul Verhoeven's Basic Instinct. It's coming out on 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray and DVD. It's a 4K restoration and it is loaded with special features. A lot of new content on there. I picked up the 4K from the UK two or three months ago and it is absolutely stunning. You need to add this to your collection. Then lastly moving on to Paramount. Paramount are releasing more bloody Miramax catalog titles on Blu-ray and DVD, and it's like serious. Like these titles have been in our marketplace that many times. They've been in our marketplace when they were distributed by Buena Vista. They would have been in our marketplace when they were distributed by Roadshow. They've been in our marketplace when they were distributed by Real, and now they're back in the marketplace through Paramount. So some of the titles include the Spy Kids trilogy, Good Will Hunting, The Crow City of Angels, and get this, a Wes Craven collection. However, it's consisting of one film that Wes served as an executive producer on and the other two are just merely Wes Craven Presents features. Those titles include the theatrical release Dracula 2000 and the two DTVs, Dracula 2 Ascension and Dracula 3 Legacy. So hey Paramount, rather than regurgitating the same old Miramax releases that have been available in our marketplace a million bloody times, how about you release some of your own catalogue titles that you've been releasing overseas on 4K but not locally including JJ Abrams Super 8. How about that? That'd be nice. And I mean, screams happening in the States in October. So maybe you could release that on 4K locally because that would be nice. Anyway, that's it for me for this week. Until next time, stay physical. Spiral is out this week, Ben. We
4: recorded a reaction video to that. (laughs) We did. Uh, Anybody that's interested to know what we thought of that can uh, check us out on Facebook, uh, YouTube and Instagram. Jarrett doesn't like it <laughs> according to a segment. Yeah,
5: I'm thinking about it like I don't think my opinion of it has improved mm. in the time since we we watched it. Like I still like the, the thing that's so that's most iconic about the film really, despite all of the, the kills and all that sort of stuff, is uh, Chris Rock's earring. That's still <laughs> what I think about when I think of Spiral. The fact like, he's a cop and he's allowed to have an earring? I don't think that's how it works.
4: <laughs> the fact that they uh, they sort of queued that one up as if it was going to be some magical reboot to the franchise and it just ended up being a sequel.
5: <laughs> just a sequel to it, yeah.
4: <laughs> anyway, and also, the, um, the uh, it's hilarious that they're releasing that Wes Craven collection, a triple pack on DVD, with Dracula 2000, Dracula 2, and Dracula 3. <laughs> like, what the fuck? If that's not taking a piss on the man's legacy,
5: yeah. Although I love Dracula Two Thousand, I
4: know that's a good movie. But like number two and three, like he had nothing to do
5: with those. No, no, nothing (laughs) at all. But you get to see you do. You get to see Vitamin C's boobies. (laughs) That was like a. That was the shocking thing that I took away from uh, from Dracula Two Thousand. I was like, she literally has just come out with that graduation song, (laughs) and the first thing she does after graduating is get her boobies out in (laughs) it. In a in a dodgy movie this is amazing you
4: remember like on a few shows now you've mentioned that guy at the video store back in the day that used to remember all the pissing scenes
5: yes you're the guy that remembers all the boobs yes I <laughs> I was uh I was, <laughs> for a while there people used to use me instead of celebrity skin <laughs> uh, I was like my life was you know the, you know in um in uh, in what well, not was not 40 year old version, what was the um, what was the first big um, what's the name comedy with Seth Rogen?
4: Ooh, um, yeah, first
5: one, Super Bad. No, 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 the the one where he knocks up Catherine Heigl, well, knocked up, knocked up, <laughs> knocked up, knocked up, and the, the stoners are like talking about making a, a thing that lists all the nudity in the right. in films, like that was me, but in the early 90s, I was like. <laughs> it's like michelle fiverr oh, into the night people <laughs> would just name and i could tell you what movie they got naked in i was i lived a, a very lonely <laughs> very lonely uh, teens <laughs> deservedly deservedly lonely teens that's a really sad <laughs> but note for the by, show. by myself
4: yeah. <laughs> Do you remember, just while we're on that Wes Craven thing, do you remember the movie Dracula 3000?
5: That used to confuse the shit out of me. I do remember Dracula 3000, but I remember thinking, like, <laughs> why would any like, Dracula 2000 was the joke. Mm. Why is somebody, like, not the joke. I mean, like, I, I legitimately enjoyed that film. But I was like, it's already, like, this is already almost the, it, it and it got a theatrical release, but it's like the DTV version. Yeah. Of you know, kind of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula uh-huh. kind of thing. It's like the teen, it's like the teen version, it's the dimension I, I mean, version. Yeah, the dimension version exactly. Yeah. But when they like, why is this, like what? Why does that one deserve like a, a cheap knockoff? It it already is the cheap knockoff.
4: <laughs> hey, Dracula three thousand had Casper Van Dien and Dracula in space. So come on, it's not all bad.
5: Yeah, it's yeah. Well, Casper Van Dien is the problem really. Always. <laughs> <laughs> He's always been the problem. Oh, as much gosh. as I like him, I, until until Sleepy Hollow, when you're like, "Oh, this guy, maybe this guy actually has some chops." And then no, <laughs> no. no, no. Sorry, Casper. Well,
4: well, thank you to Jared. Anyway, uh, he is from Monster Pictures. For those of you who are new to the show and
5: wondering, who the fuck is that guy? Because they're not wondering that about us. <laughs> <laughs> like they're who the fuck are these assholes <laughs> talking shit about? Dracula Three Thousand. I fucking love that film. <laughs> Bob Weinstein's an
4: avid listener. He's,
5: he's a <laughs> Joel Soison. Well, it's like he's, he's got to have something to do while he's waiting for Harvey to get to <laughs> you know, enter the, the visiting area. He's just listening to Good Movie Monday. Exactly. It's his routine.
4: So now let us do what we come to do every week and recommend some movies. 90s thrillers. I'm going to take the lead on this one. And this is one that just barely scrapes it in. It was released in 1990 and it's the cult legend extraordinaire Larry Cohen. It's a film called The Ambulance. And this one kind of teeters on the edge of thriller and horror, kind of doesn't quite go into horror, but it does have that
5: kind of atmosphere. And well, this is a... It could have very easily, very easily could have become like a, a great horror film. And it does lead you to believe that's the way it's headed. Yeah,
4: it could have been like the first of a franchise, easily. Uh, and it, mm. I'd still like, this is one, before I even tell people what it's about, I would love to see this remade. Like, if you talk about movies that could be remade well, this is one that lends itself perfectly to being remade.
5: Like, when you think about, like, kind of those medical horror films, kind of like Coma and... Um, Anatomy. The, 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 yeah, Anatomy. Um, what was it? Is it... I always get it it's mixed up. It's uh, the one with uh, Hugh Grant.
4: Oh, Extreme Measures? No. Um, is it, it Extreme Measures?
5: That one, because I always used to get it kind of mixed up with the chamber with Chris, the Chris O'Donnell one, something like that. That one, but like all of those kind of you know those you know things going wrong in hospital yeah, kind of things. Yeah. And and ambulance is the one that's the most kind of actiony. Yeah,
4: totally. I mean, it
5: isn't, but it, it is. But and but I remember like the first watching it the first time, <laughs> the thought of it, the thought of that happening. Let's let's go into was, the
4: exactly. Let's talk about what happens, but <laughs> we were already yeah, yeah, yeah. reacting
5: to it. <laughs> we're talking about. Uh, yeah. but- <laughs> Eric Roberts,
4: of course, stars in this one, sporting the most magnificent mullet you're ever going to see. One of those mullets in the 80s or the 90s that was sort of fluffy. You know, like they, they didn't style it. this yeah. was just fluff. Um, but anyway, he plays a guy that's kind of creepy. He, he chats up women on the streets of New York and he chats up a particular woman who has uh, a diabetic seizure right in front of him and then she's whisked off into an ambulance and he promises to track her down and he can't. He goes to the hospitals and discovers that she was never admitted and it appears that she was kidnapped and then he sort of goes to the cops and it becomes this whole story about him trying to track down the ambulance and uncovers some kind of sort of secret underground experimental thing going on and it is cool and just for some I guess texture here that the ambulance itself featured in the film is one of those old school you know Ghostbusters ecto one type of ambulances so it's it's even in the movie they're referencing how that is not a normal ambulance you know
5: yeah it, and I think it's because it, it, it has it does have a scene very similar to if I'm remembering it correctly very similar to FX where you know when he calls he calls in after the after the kind of botched thing and then while he's he's waiting, someone else uses the phone booth yep. and then gets killed. And the same thing, Eric Roberts kind of does the same thing, like when he calls the cops or whatever, and then he's waiting and someone else, the ambulance kind of drives, like gets wind of it. <laughs> and uh, Paul, in the phone. Speaking of
4: the cops, James L. Jones uh, plays the lead detective in this one, and he has got to be one of like grumpiest fucking bastards I've ever seen in a movie. He's so sarcastic and smart ass. Like he kind of... Yeah. Inhibits the movie as well, like, because you're watching it going, fucking hell, dude, just listen to this guy. Like, you don't have to be a smartass just because you're James Earl Jones.
5: No, he's a good, uh, he's just a good, uh, was it New York, New York City cop? I should mention too that the woman is Janine Turner from Northern Express. I was about to say yeah, that, and, and Cliffhanger. And Monkey Shines.
4: Yes. And also features um Megan Gallagher from Hill Street Blues in the Larry Sanders show, plus Oscar mm-hmm. winner Red Buttons is in it. Hilarious.
5: I love Megan Gallagher. And what
4: about, um, Tom Selleck lights, Eric Braden.
5: <laughs> I love and, and this will come up in my film, funnily enough, but I love uh like the almost the I call them the 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 made-for-tv versions yeah. Yeah. of actors. You're like he's the he's the cinema version, and that's you know, TV's. It's TV's Tom Selleck, <laughs> which is ironic considering that Tom Selleck is a TV I know. star. <laughs>
4: But anyway, look the movie it's does It moves at such a cracking pace. Like it, it, it's definitely a Larry Cohen movie. It's stylistically one of his. But I think it also kind of feels like it's a almost like a, a softer William Lustig film because it kind of has that maniac cop feel about the way. It I was going to say,
5: it, like it is. It did for Ambulances what Maniac Cop did for cops. Like that whole thing about yeah, and they talk about in Maniac Cop about how they don't they don't want to let it go too public because that's the last thing, you know people shooting cops in terror and stuff like that and that's you know it's exactly what's kind of happening in the ambulance definitely except it's ambulances they could you know, be in the same
4: dead. universe like it's you know it's very very similar but before i yeah. throw it over to you for your first recommendation the best piece of trivia in this one is the fact that eric robert's character um works at marvel comics as an illustrator and Stan yeah, Lee exactly. plays himself as the boss, and this goes way back before Marvel really took off in in cinematic terms. Um, in fact, this was the same year that Albert Pune's Captain America came along, so that's where Marvel were at at the time.
5: Yeah, right. I will say this: if you can get a hold of, I think I think it's the Umbrella DVD release of the ambulance, they screwed up on the on the on the print mm-hmm. because it's it's actually full frame. I believe it said. I think it even may even say that it came out as four three, and it's but it's not. They've just left the gate, so that they haven't. They should have put down the black bars at the top and the bottom, Mm. so you actually get more. Technically, you get more picture. You see a lot of stuff that you maybe shouldn't be seeing, uh, in that DVD release of the ambulance than you would on on the uh, the re release Blu Ray and stuff.
4: Well, there there you go. That makes it an interesting uh, interesting purchase if you can find it.
5: If you can find that DVD, like it is, it's a, yeah, you know, it's a bit different.
4: And I caught it, I believe I rented that one from YouTube and it was a very clean looking film, probably taken from a Blu-ray overseas.
5: I, I'm pretty sure it's come out on Blu-ray. Yeah,
4: it has overseas. I think it has in the States, 88 films or something like that, maybe. Maybe, yeah. But anyway, that's okay. The Ambulance, it's well worth a look, but Ben, you're up next with your recommendation.
5: Uh, well, my one does tie in a little bit in that James Earl Jones pops up in it, but uh, in my one, he only p- pops up right in the last kind of five minutes, and he has a great a great cameo. Uh, but this is uh, a film from 1992, so the opposite end of the decade. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's, no, it's the same. Yours was yes. 1990, wasn't it? So similar end of the decade, uh, and it is uh, Sneakers. Oh, yes. Which is a great film. I, I was kind of on the fence about talking about this one because I, I thought, is this too well known? Is it too big of a film?
4: I think it was uh, a very big film and now it's become obscure.
5: Yeah. Now it's a it's a little kind of people don't talk about it anymore. Like it's one of those movies that at the time it was like a you know kind of a big film that now has has well, slipped out didn't of it, the, you know, it.
4: It came before like it came before hackers, right? So hackers kind of took yeah. took the the mantle with that
5: one. So kind of Yeah, hackers and hackers is definitely like the teen
4: Yeah. But it, it cast a the shadow. It cast movie. a shadow over sneakers and sneakers kind of got forgotten. I think this is a fantastic film, albeit dated, but it's good because it's dated.
5: Yeah, I'm um, look I mean I think it's I think it's far superior to hackers, personally. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the cast is just phenomenal. The cast is great. So it's 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 directed by Phil Olden Robinson, who is one of my favorite uh writers and directors. He he uh he directed Field of Dreams, which which I recently
4: with James Earl Jones
5: <laughs> had some had, had some fun on the internet uh, about uh and the sum of all fears yep. uh which funny enough is a jack ryan movie and the previous jack ryan movies not this one had james l jones in mm-hmm. them uh <laughs> he wrote rhinestone <laughs> which is a feather in anyone's cap and the ghost dad which i think we joked about We'd... a couple of weeks ago <laughs> we did uh <laughs> and he also he but he's also like i think he directed the first episode of band of brothers he's doing a lot of tv he's got a lot to do with the good wife and the good fight and uh stuff like that but um so it also, st- it stars Robert Redford is the, is the kind of lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And he basically plays this kind of, he's a, a, a kind of a sixties um, or like sixties counter or seventies counterculture kind of um, uh, troublemaker who's, you know, do slash do-gooder who yep. doesn't trust yep. the government. And um, they, he, and he, and his good old, his good buddy, uh, Played by kind of well, it's 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 a flashback, so it's the young versions of themselves. But <laughs> Ben Kingsley, basically <laughs> the Ben Kingsley character, um, they get busted hacking into a government computer, and um, Ben Kingsley gets caught. Robert uh, Redford doesn't, and kind of goes on the run, and is in hiding. Very similar to kind of to that kind of flashback movie with Dennis yeah. Hopper. Um, so he goes hiding, but what he actually then he he takes a fake name. And he sets up a, a kind of this company where they they break into places, um, to find and the, and for like the like a bank will hire them to break into the bank and test the, their their security vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. And on his team are like Dan Aykroyd,
4: another um another Bruce Beresford connection. He was in Driving with yeah,
5: Daisy. Indeed, uh, Sidney Portier, mm-hmm. uh, David Strathairn. Uh, River and River Phoenix. So this is like a, it's like an all star crew.
4: And Mary McDonald.
5: And Mary McDonald is like yeah, comes into it uh, a bit later. She's the kind of love interest. And I like it's it's the kind of thing that was interesting to me. When I was looking at, when I was kind of researching this was that she was because she was forty years old, but this was the time like ninety around ninety two. This is when all that stuff about Redford came out about how he would he wanted like any leading lady had to be at least twenty years younger than he was. <laughs> It was around that kind of up close and personal Mm -hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer kind of stuff, like all his, and she was actually 40 at the time. So she was, uh, you know, hitting pretty close to the mark. Yeah. totally. But she's like, she's uh, luminescent in this film. (laughs) You can't, you cannot take her eyes off it. It's like, she's, Every nerd's dream. Particularly like Mary's when
4: the, control. for for one of better word, the heist takes place. Like she
5: is just great during all of that yeah, stuff. She's great. Yeah. 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 Um, Also popping along for the, oh, and so basically, so Robert Redford's kind of on the run, but the government track him down and they, uh the NSA basically, and they want him to steal a, a box from a scientist. And they don't tell him what the box is or what it, they just say, look, you, you do this for us and we'll uh, wipe your record. So you can, you know, come out of hiding. Yep. So he, he, and of course, and pay you $170,000. So he and the team do, but uh, everything is not as it seems. And I don't want to kind of give away any of the the cool kind of plot twists, but um, also along for the of this is great. Timothy Busfield pops up uh, who I, who I have a lot of time for and Eddie Jones, Eddie Jones, it was most well known to me as playing Jonathan Kent in Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman, yeah. but he's also the dad of the, I can't remember the name of the girl, but the kind of, the ugly, the ugly girl from a league of their own who can really hit. Oh, like she's a really great player.
4: Not Laurie Petty. No,
5: no, 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 no. She's, she's on the same team as, as um I I don't know her name, but okay. um he's he's the kind of dad and he's like super sympath- sympathetic in both those two roles that I've known him for and in this film he plays an arsehole like a really great arsehole and there's a great bit where <laughs> where uh, Robert Redford tells this joke about he's like uh oh yeah I wanted to join the NSA but uh they found out my parents were, ma- were married and uh, <laughs> Eddie Jones does not take this gag well and it is a great it's a great scene um, but also, so a, a young and thin Donald Logue
0: uh,
5: <laughs> pops up. Uh, Stephen Tobolowsky has a great little cameo with a, a robot dog, <laughs> which is great. Uh, and of course, and James L. Jones, who turns up at, at, at the very end of the film. And he's once again playing a kind of a frustrated authority figure. And he is great. Excellent. Like it, The only people I can think of who could have played that role would be him or Wilford Brimley. <laughs> like yeah. they're the two like for that for that role and uh, a big a shout out to Gary (laughs) Hirschberger Gary Hirschberger plays the young Robert Redford and like he fucking nails it like (laughs) watching it again today and you're like the other guy the guy playing young Ben Kingsley doesn't look it looks nothing like Ben Kingsley Mm -hmm. this guy when I was looking in the credits on IMDB to try and find out who it was at first I didn't see him and I thought was that just did they just do makeup on Redford? Was he playing his <laughs> younger self? And, but no, it was this guy and he like spot on, he looks so much like him. It's just a, it's a really good, they did a really good job on, on that, that part at the beginning. This is
4: a great tech thriller. What I love about these ones, I mean, people watch them now and, and they say these are dated, you know, outdated. But I think that, I think that so. that's what makes it kind of good though because it was the technology of its time. So therefore it's a great time capsule movie. This is, you know, the way these things happened back then, you know, techno, you know tech-wise.
5: Yeah. I mean, it is, yeah, look, I, I guess it is, it doesn't feel outdated to me because I grew up in a period of time where, you know, telephones had dials and <laughs> and cords. there was no, there was no internet like, you know. But it's
4: like I said on last week's show, like kids these days, like when they, I, I mentioned the exorcist, they laugh at the stuff that's actually disturbing and things like that, just because, yeah. you know, they're a new generation and just have different attention spans and all that kind of stuff. And I think the technology in sneakers definitely we understand, but anyone else looking at this? No.
5: Yeah. <laughs> But there was, that, you know, that great period of time where you could hum a, and they do it in in hackers as well, but where you could hum into the phone and get free. <laughs> oh, and I think he does it in, um, doesn't he? Doesn't DJ Quails do it in the core? Oh, he might do. Yeah, I think so. He comes into the phone and puts in a couple of digits and says, "You've got free international calls for life."
4: Well, well whatever it is. What today's kids don't realise is that back in back in our day, credit cards opened every door.
5: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Or, a, or a, a swift kick. Yeah, that's right. In one thing, which is like, it's probably the greatest comedic, because this is it is a fairly light kind of. I mean, despite the fact that their lives are on at risk at, at times and people are getting killed and all sorts of stuff is happening, Phil Alden Robinson's films all have this kind of light comedic yeah. feel to it's them, a, even when dealing with it's a with PG, uh, it's a stuff. PG thriller
4: yeah and look before we move on i think uh the the standout here for me is river phoenix because it really kind of showcased what potential he had because this was such a different character to what he had played nearly everything before
5: it yeah right yeah like he's that he was for me he i he was always a lot bigger like i think by the time i saw this he'd already died yeah right so uh, it was always like you know he was it was odd that he was in such a kind of small role. Mm. It's not a small; he's one of the main kind of um, crew, but it's still a fairly minor role compared to the the kind of heavy hitters of David Strathair yeah. and Sidney Poitier, and Dan Aykroyd.
4: Definitely, you know he was the he was the rookie.
5: He was the rookie kid, yeah. yeah. And he, and it's not a and it's odd when he's not the lead when it's not about him, <laughs> which I think in all the other movies I've ever seen River Phoenix in, he's always the lead well hey he's still got more screen
4: time than emilio estevez did in mission impossible so
5: (laughs) that's the the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making you think all those people in mission impossible were in mission impossible and then they killed them in the first 10 minutes it's amazing (laughs) great
6: What's happening, everybody? It's Guillermo here again from ScreenRealm.com, Australia's favorite entertainment website covering all things movies and television. Here to share just a little bit of what we've covered on the website in the past week, kicking off with a Kevin Hart and Mark Wahlberg Netflix movie. That's right, Kevin Hart and Mark Wahlberg are set to star together for the first time in a Netflix comedy called Me Time. The film is to be directed and written by John Hamburg, known for I Love You Man, Why Him, and Along Came Polly. He also worked with Hart on the screenplay for Night School, which also starred Tiffany Haddish. time will find Hart playing a stay-at-home dad who finally finds himself with some alone time while his wife and kids are away he reconnects with a former best friend to be played by Wahlberg and the two embark on a wild weekend that will upend this dad's life considering how big these two stars are expect this one to be quite the hit for Netflix and in what isn't too much of a surprise Anthony Mackie will officially be carrying the shield in Captain America 4 the first film in the MCU that Anthony Mackie will lead there's still no word on whether Sebastian Stan will also be on board as Bucky Barnes slash Winter Soldier. The fourth cap film in the MCU has being written by Malcolm Spellman, creator and head writer of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, along with Dallin Mussen, who was a staff writer on the series. As of yet, no director has been named. And we had a review written by Glenn up in the past week for a horror film called Come Play, which has community star Gillian Jacobs in one of the lead roles. The film tells of a monster named Larry, who manifests itself through smartphones and mobile devices. It targets a young boy and let's just say that things get really creepy from there on out. Glenn really enjoyed this one, giving it 4 out of 5 stars, writing in his review, come play is the stuff of nightmares it's a fresh take on an old formula that flirts with the viewers preconceptions and offers up a whole lot of substance to accompany the style so if you're looking for a horror film perhaps check out come play which was released on australian digital download on august 18th and it's been a while but we have another giveaway up on the website this one is for john pierre Jeunet's award-winning much-loved oh so wonderful french hit Emily. on september 1st amelie is receiving a brand new digital restoration to mark its 20th anniversary and we're giving away blu-ray copies to celebrate jump on ScreenRealm.com and head to our win page to enter this giveaway that about does for me guys just a quick one this week as always visit us at ScreenRealm.com. go to youtube type in screen realm follow us there check out the latest videos we've got going up follow us on social media as well screen realm across the board till next week i'm out of here
4: Daddy, Apex Twin. That's from the soundtrack to Eight mm starring Nicolas Cage. Now, that was another film that came in the wake of Seven. Ben, in fact, it was written by Seven Scribe, Andrew Kevin Walker. Do you remember that guy?
5: No. <laughs> he was <laughs> at that time. At that time, I was not paying attention to people who wrote movies. He was complete hot property in the nineties.
4: You know, Seven obviously put him on the radar as one of the hot new writers in Hollywood. But uh, previously, before that, he had written Brain Scan and Hideaway. Um, but after Seven came Eight Millimeter and Sleepy Hollow. But then he just sort of vanished. He sort of fell off the grid and only returned once for Wolfman in 2010. Well, you know what
5: happened? Joe esterhouse wrote Basic Instinct. Mm-hmm. And then the autobiography came out where he talked about how Sharon Stone slept with him as a thank you for writing Basic Instinct. <laughs> and he went, what the fuck? Christina Ritchie didn't sleep with me. <laughs> For writing Sleepy Hollow, but I bet Kevin Spacey did. <laughs> so, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm not doing this anymore until someone pays me a million dollars and Sharon Stone has sex with. Me. He
4: did pop up in Panic Room. Do you remember there was a scene in Panic Room where they they peer through a pipe and they can see the neighbor in the in the room across the way, and he's like a fat guy on the edge of his bed looking all miserable. That's Andrew Kevin Walker.
5: I thought that was me. <laughs>
4: And he does have two more films in the works, which is cool. He's got one called Windfall coming out with Jesse Plemons and Jason Segel, but more exciting, David Finch's new film, The Killer, um, Andrew Kevin Walker is right in again. So it's good. He's back.
5: Yeah, he's back. And hopefully that means more uh, reversey credits.
4: <laughs> that's right. That's what the, uh, That's what our era is missing now. We need more reversey
5: credits. Reversey credits. Like I remember, I literally remember watching Seven in the cinema and watching those credits going, the fuck they do this (laughs) like it's you know like i used to sit through the end of credits just in case there was something at the end for for credit watches uh like like in the visitors where they they salute they do a salute for credit watches this was before there was real kind of easter eggs i'm guessing that you've
4: probably always thought that ushers were just miserable sons of bitches but it's just because you were that one guy that prevented them from cleaning the fucking floor
5: yeah i just (laughs) sat there i was like and I'm going to leave all my junk here. <laughs> they should have just worked around you. Yeah, I wouldn't have minded. <laughs> like I'm just watching it for just, you know, sometimes to appease them, I would stand up. I wouldn't move from, from <laughs> my seat. Lift your feet up. But I, but I would stand up just to make it look like I was on my way out. But I'm like, no, I'm waiting to the end of the credits. I don't want to be that dumb asshole who gets out and then talks to someone, and they're like, oh, did you see that bit at the end with the monkey? and the coin like it pirates of the caribbean and then although let me tell you pirates of the caribbean tested the friendship because you stuck around for what felt like the length of the film of worth of credits see that stupid monkey take that stupid coin and you're like well that wasn't worth it
4: yeah those ones suck
5: Just the uh, jesus
4: anyway it's time to uh present my chat with bruce beresford uh as I said at the uh, top of the show, that people are not familiar with this guy. Let's give some kind of backstory here. Firstly, we are going to talk about Bruce Beresford's films you know, with sort of you know, more depth on our Tuesday night video, which is tomorrow night if uh, you're listening to us on the day of release. Otherwise, go backwards. There's a video somewhere. But um, <laughs> this guy made, for example, right in the early days, The Adventures of Barry McKenzie, Don's Party, The Club, Puberty Blues, Money Movers, which is one of my personal favourites. Before he even hit Hollywood with Tender Mercies and Crimes of the Heart and Her Alibi, Drive Miss Daisy, Black Robe, Silent Fall, I can just keep going. There's so many. Suffice to say, this guy is what filmmaking royalty. This is the time of you know the new wave of of Aussie cinema.
5: Indeed, uh, but I think we should institute a like a start something here today, and we should call him Brucey B. Brucey B. So when Bruce people B. talk about Bruce Beresford, they call, they just call him Brucey B.
4: Oh, that's a great! I should have put that
5: on the banner. I, do You like the club? Do you, like the the do you like the films? Do you like the films of Brucey B? Oh. I do like the films of Brucey B. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, Brucey
4: B in the house.
5: As you were yeah. listing those films, I realised how many of them I haven't actually seen, and maybe I'm wo- woefully underprepared <laughs> for the video. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> as long as I can just keep interjecting with a Brucey B gag. I'll be
4: fine. So the so the film in discussion is Brucey e. B's Double Jeopardy. So it's the the Double J, and um, starring Ashley Judd and Tommy Lee Jones, as we said before, and both stars at the time, Ashley J and
5: uh, Tommy J, <laughs> at, Tommy Lee J, at the time both yeah, of them mean.
4: had come off a string of thrillers. So Jones had come off The Future, Different U.S. Marshals, and The Client, and Judd had come off I of the Beholder, Kiss the Girls, and Time to Kill. And that's a little I bit don't heavy. think
5: anyone, when talking about Ashley Judd's career before, has <laughs> mentioned Eye of the Beholder. Is it like a key? <laughs> no, but I'm trying if to tie in know. the
4: fact to give some context to the discussion that they had come off some thrillers. Thrillers, <laughs> yeah,
5: right. <laughs> like not even I don't think
4: you and McGregor remembers making Eye of the Beholder. <laughs> but the thing about Double Jeopardy is it, it did not land at time of release. It was not like a, it didn't hit the mark. It really was not a successful film. Right. Yeah, but um, There's the context, and here he is, Brucey B. Well, firstly, thanks for taking this time. I think you've got a pretty incredible body of work, um, and it's very impossible to pigeonhole you. Has it been intentional over the years for you to keep a a variety between your, your projects? Well, I mean, all that happens is every project takes up so much time and thought that I always want the next one to be different. Because otherwise, i just get bored. Yeah, well that like, that makes sense. Um, and, and when Double Jeopardy did come along, at that point in your career, which I think was the, the late 90s, you'd previously only made two thrillers, if I'm correct. Does um, a project like Double Jeopardy, does that come to you or do you go looking for it? No, it did
3: come to me. I, I've been in London. I've been trying to set up a film called Our Country's Good which was all financed, and then I couldn't understand, we couldn't find any actors who wanted to do it. And finally, after about a year of this, we just gave up. I mean, although we had the money to make the film, nobody wanted to act in it. So then my agent called me from Los Angeles, and he said, look, you've been buggering around on that film in England for too long, and I've got a script here that um, they want you to do, and I think you should do it. And he said it was Double Jeopardy.
4: Wow, so that's um, that's sort of fortuitous too because there were a lot of films similar to it at the time but in hindsight, uh, yours probably comes out the other end, the slicker and, and the better of the lot. Well,
3: uh, actually, the same studio, Paramount had made a film called Double Jeopardy the year before.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and I, called, I pointed out to, uh, it had, um, um, what's her name in it, uh, Rachel Ward. It had Rachel Ward and um, oh, some big-name actor, I can't remember now. But I, I called the studio and I said, do you realise you made a film called Double Jeopardy last
4: year? <laughs> and they said
3: to me, oh, don't worry, nobody saw that.
4: <laughs> and that had the Aussie connection too. Yes, that's right. Wow. Um, was, was, um, was Double Jeopardy an easy production or more of an arduous one?
3: No, it went fairly smoothly. Um, you know, I had a, it was a big studio behind me, it was Paramount, so, you know, they had, um, you know, it was, it was unusual for me to make a film with some kind of a budget, I'd hardly ever done
4: that. And, uh, Tommy Lee Jones has a reputation for being a little bit prickly on set, how would you describe working with him? He was very nice, everyone told me he was difficult to live to him, he was charming, Right, well, that's and good. That's good to hear.
3: He always arrived. He was always on time. He was always word perfect. He was always cooperative.
4: Fantastic, and and the same the same reputation kind of uh preceded Ashley Judd as well. What about her? Was she was she good to work with? Oh, she was fine. Oh, good. They were all fine. I mean, Tommy
3: Lee said to me one day, um, he said, "Oh, Bruce, you're so lucky. I'm in this film," and I said, uh, "Why? Why am I so lucky, Tommy Lee?" And he said. Who else could deliver this lousy dialogue and make it sound so
7: convincing?
4: <laughs> He's got a point. <laughs> <laughs> and the film um, is being celebrated with a Blu-ray re-release coming up, and it's not the first one you've had re-released in Blu-ray. You had uh, Barry McKenzie recently. Could you ever have envisioned that these would have the longevity that they do?
3: Well, I'm not sure that anybody would give a stuff about Barry McKenzie these days. I was.
4: I didn't know. Is there a blue rabbit? Yeah, there is. Um, Umbrella put one out um, last year.
3: I'm sure nobody bought it.
4: (laughs) You might be surprised. (laughs) So I'm wondering, just before I let you go, uh, do you have, it's a very hard question, but do you have a favourite of a a film of yours over the years? Well, I've never watched any of them
3: again once they've been finished, so I don't know. I have to look at them again.
4: Fair enough. I mean, I haven't seen
3: Double Jeopardy since we finished it. When was that? A long
4: time ago. Yeah, it was like 2000. It got released in 2000, but I think it was a 99 production, so you would have filmed it even yeah, earlier. I've never seen it again. Wow. So yeah, that's. Well, I mean, you don't
3: watch your own films. I watch other people's
4: films. Well, that's true, of course. I mean, sometimes... Curiosity might get the better of you. I, I might have thought. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, look, a couple of months ago, I um I had the privilege of interviewing Robert Duvall, and he always uh takes he talks about Tender Mercies and Lonesome Dove as being his two favourite films that he's made. Both of them are Australian directors. Uh, why do you think Aussies have a knack of telling the American story? Oh, I, 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 it's
8: just you know a, a fluke. <laughs>
3: Uh, I don't think they do Yeah. I I'd... Mean, it was just lucky that um, Which was the other one he mentioned?
4: Yeah. Uh, Lonesome Dove, which Simon Winsor oh, made
3: Lonesome Dove, yeah Well, that's from a wonderful American novel Yep By Larry McMurtry It'd be, you know But wasn't it directed by Simon Winsor?
4: Yes, it was Oh, well, he's very good Yes, absolutely yeah. they were, But they were both written by Americans uh, And they, um, the roles were very, very good for him I mean, the tender mercies was it right, specifically for Bob. Yeah, right. Well, I think it's marvelous. It's, it's certainly probably amongst my three favourite of your films. So, uh... it only ever was it ever, I don't think it was ever shown in Australia. though. But... I think it got a, a very small theatrical run. But I know, like that's another one of your films that recently had a Blu-ray release. Did it? Yeah, because I
3: mean, the reviews in Australia for Double Jeopardy were terrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which rather surprised me at the time because the reviews in America have been so good.
4: You know, I think there might have just been a little bit of a saturation of the genre at the time.
3: Well, maybe, I don't know. You'd never tell with reviews. Yeah. Oh, this one's going to be an absolute turkey and then it turns out okay. And others you think, I've had it for this, and then, um, you know,
4: you never know. You never know what's going on. Well, mate, I love I love Double Jeopardy. I, I liked it when it got released, and I, I like it even more now. I watched it last week, you know, before I put this interview people, together. People always
3: seem to enjoy
4: it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just very slick. Yeah,
3: the story doesn't make any
4: sense at all. None. <laughs> um, but
3: it doesn't seem to matter. Nah, it's a movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's quite lively.
4: Fun. For yeah. sure, for sure. And uh, look, one, one final comment, I guess I could say before I let you go, is that one of my all-time favourite films is Money Movers, so I just want to thank you for that one. Money Movers! <laughs> you know, my wife works, uh, up until recently worked for uh, doing the cash-in transits, and uh, so we could relate to that movie very much. Oh. <laughs> it's, a, it's a banger, it's a beauty.
3: Oh, it was a Big career mistake for me. Was it really? Mm. Yes, I got so, such
4: horrible reviews. I had trouble getting another job. That amazes me. Mm. Don't you know? yeah, you so. can't, but I, I, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people, you know, over the last couple of years, and just in conversation. Money Movers is one of those highly regarded films amongst the, you know, the filmies, and I know that Quentin Tarantino celebrates it as one of his favorites. It's sort of a, it must have been a real sleeper hit. Wasn't at all. Well now it is like it's <laughs> I know um, Umbrella Entertainment are glad they've got it on their catalogue. That's
3: interesting. I don't know, I'm really amazed.
4: Um, well there you go. I oh certainly
3: have never seen that never even never even glimpsed a foot of it ever again.
4: Oh well <laughs> Well, I take it from me as a movie lover, I think it's a fantastic movie.
3: God, I can't remember. He, he had some good action scenes. So I remember
4: that. Great cast. You had Bud Tingwell and Terence Donovan and Brian Brown. Oh, I just love it. Yeah. Well, anyway, well, well, thank you so much for um taking okay, time no out. Right. I, I do appreciate it. I hope you um have a great afternoon. Okay. Thanks for calling. No worries. See ya. Okay, bye. <laughs> the man and the legend, Brucey e. B, in the house. Eight. Brucey B. I can imagine him with like lots of bling around his neck, the cap on sideways,
5: directing Driving Miss Daisy too. Doing the West Side sign. Miss D. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why he called her Driving Miss Daisy, because she loves the D. That's
4: right. So he, Brucey B directing Driving Miss D to Rave from the Grave. <laughs> yeah.
5: Daisy's back, and she wants revenge.
4: Oh, <laughs> uh, do you know Bruce Beresford is eighty years old, and he's still got a new film in production.
5: He's just—he's a, a wonderkind.
4: He is. Clear Lake is a new one he's got coming out, all about Buddy Holly and his peers that are, sort of tells the story of their. Tour across America at the integrated sort of rock and roll bills back in those days. So
5: that'll be interesting. With Richie Valance and stuff? Like, is it, yeah, yeah. Is it going to come?
4: Yeah, yeah. Like um, well, you've got uh, the guy from Conjuring 3, Rory O'Connor, playing Buddy Holly. Colin Hanks is on board as the producer, Norman Petty.
5: I um, thought oh, he, he could play a really good Buddy Holly. I Holland. know, that's
4: what I thought. And then um, <laughs> this is weird, and this is where everything might come unstuck because it is IMDb after all, but Chuck Berry is being played by Nally. Wow. Yes. That's interesting. (laughs) It's like Brucey B doesn't understand who Nelly
5: is. Nelly is, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, at some point, hopefully in the film, it gets hot in here. (laughs) Don't. Do not. (laughs) Or like, how are they going to... Like, he's he's not going to be allowed to wear his grills.
4: (laughs) He's going to bear those grills, mate.
5: He's going to bear those. That's the only... I can't remember the name of the other... A Ride With Me. That's right. He's going to have to ride... I really blew that last uh, <laughs> <laughs> That last try to tie it into a Nelly song that I'd heard of.
1: Welcome to Bonehead Weekly Fun Size. This week, we're going to talk about 90s thrillers. Guys, there were a ton of thrillers throughout the 90s.
7: Oh, there were. And my, mom, and my mom made me watch every single one of them. So thank you for bringing
1: up trauma. But that definition sure is, I agree with James, loose. Yeah I would say there's is. there's
8: all sorts of weird things he pulled up if you if you kids get on the googles and search nope. 90s thrillers it's, it brings in horror movies and everything else. But go ahead,
1: Joe. Mine is from 92. It's a movie that James doesn't care for that I actually do because I think it's Hitchcockian. And I, it's not one of my favorite movies. I just think it's so well made and its basic instinct. It's from 1992. It's directed by Paul Verhoeven starring Michael Douglas, Sharon Stone, and Joe House or Esterhaus. Uh, James, I'm right
7: there with you.
1: Got famous. For selling spec scripts, right? And we talked about this a little bit beforehand. He'd he'd wrote a Jagged Edge. He made a ton of money selling Jade and Sliver. And this is when they would sell three, four, five million dollars or pay that much for a script. Another one of P, uh, Chad's favorite authors, Shane Black, got rich during this time, right? The Long mm-hmm. Kiss Goodnight was one of the highest paid screenplays. They don't do that anymore. And Basic Instinct was one of those that they picked it up and shot it verbatim. I actually like it. I like the way it's made. To me, it's not only shot in San Francisco, but it looks like a Hitchcockian San Francisco movie. It looks like Vertigo in a lot of shots. And I think Verhoeven had to have intended to do that. I love I love that crazy Dutch bastard. I think one of my, I'd love to interview Paul Verhoeven. That'd be one of my bucket list people to interview. Same here. Same here. So whether his movies are flawed, work or don't, they're always interesting. So whether you like Basic Instinct or not, I just think it holds up better than people remember and it's very well made and it's beautiful. It's
7: it's better than the sequel?
1: I'm not talking about Showgirls. I'm not talking about the sequels. I'm not talking about a lot of other shit that was made. Uh, I'm going to do one that
7: is lesser known. When I was 16 years old, I saw this and it shook me. And I'll be honest with you all, it just started streaming again. I cannot force myself to watch it given my current circumstances. In in all fairness, it is one of Sally Field's best performances, in my opinion. I am talking about Eye for an Eye with her, Kiefer Sutherland, and Ed Harris.
1: Is it what the kids get?
7: Yeah, her daughter her daughter is violently murdered. Okay, I don't and think she's ever seen it. So it's about a lady. Again, her daughter is violently murdered. While she's on the phone with her, the criminal goes free. And she wants justice. Sally Field gives a gut wrenching performance in this movie, and Kiefer Sutherland is beyond slimy. Uh, I highly recommend. A lot of people haven't heard of this movie. It did come and go in 1990s. It was at the. It was in. It was in the first part of '96. It kind of came and went. I'll be honest with you. In terms of thrillers, it was pretty dark for that that age thriller. It was directed by John Schlesinger from Midnight Cowboy fame. Um, I highly recommend you should check it out. And if anything just for sally phil's performance because she goes full tilt on this movie and doesn't get credit
8: for it james it it has that that entire scene where um the pillow that's the scene that i remember from that, where the pillow has to be washed and it loses the scent of her daughter and she flips out yeah it's Um, devastating I'm going to take it on a lighter hearted note following Chad. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you
7: for allowing me to
8: close this episode of
7: funsies. (laughs) (laughs)
8: I'm, I'm going to talk about a movie that doesn't get enough credit, not because it's good, but because it has this line where a very not correctly cast person goes, we don't have such wonderful things in Dublin said by Tommy Lee Jones. In blown
1: away. blown away, that movie got blown away by a movie that came out a few weeks before that also dealt with people blowing shit up. You guys remember what it was? I Speed. am blank. Speed yeah. came out before Blown Away and it killed it. And Speed is, by the way, a much better film. I mm-hmm. prefer
8: Blown Away. I, I, I sympathize actually Lloyd Bridges and, and Jeff Bridges together in the same movie, obviously, as part of it. It's the not plot doesn't good. make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> But every time I catch it on, which isn't too often, I'll stop because I'm I'm waiting for the line where uh, Tommy Lee Jones is buying a toy so he can turn it into a bomb. And he says the line, we don't have such wonderful things in Dublin. (laughs) And I'm sold every time. I'm like, that's totally, he's he's way miscast, but it's a lot of fun.
1: All right. That's been Bonehead Weekly Fun Size. Funsies!
4: Very coincidental that Joe recommended Basic Instinct because, as Jarrett said earlier, that is on a spiffy new 4K UHD this week. Very timely. I'm looking forward to that one. It's got a grouse cover too. Not that the cover's the be-all and end-all, but...
5: Yes. In in how high a definition do you need to see <laughs> Jarrett's Nice beaver. <laughs> do you sleep in the noob? Like I, I would like, it'd be great if was it wrong? Not wrongfully accused. What was the uh, basic instinct? Loaded, loaded movie? weapon
4: or fatal instinct? Loaded weapon.
5: Like, yeah, that should be an extra feature on the basic instinct uh, 4K.
4: <laughs> oh, I would love loaded weapon in uh, 4K.
5: <laughs> it'd be ama- It's amazing that she does it, considering I think it's it's Kathy Island, yeah, right? Yeah, who who is playing the Sharon Stone part, and she was a kind of notorious for refusing to get naked and like a, you know a lot of kind of stuff as a model. She never she you know, didn't want to do, which is very kind of prim and proper. And yet uh, she's okay showing her beaver. Well, her, her actual beaver.
4: <laughs> but again, if you are listening to us for the first time, they were Joe Chad and James. They're from America. They have a podcast called Bonehead Weekly, and they contribute fun size segments to us every week. So just go on and find them wherever you get your podcast from. Benjamin, it's round two of recommendations. You can kick this one off, mate.
5: All right, so I've, i it turns out that I'm, I'm going to be going chronologically oh. in, my, in my recommendation. So this one is from 1997, so we've jumped ahead five years mm-hmm. from sneakers, and uh, this movie, uh, with the I guess I've, I feel like it's a bit of a bland title because I, I constantly call it retrograde <laughs> instead of what it actually is, which is retroactive. Yes. <laughs> And I guess it is an appro- it is kind of an appropriate title, but it doesn't really sum up, you know, it doesn't conjure any images with that title, but it is a fantastic film. Uh directed by uh Lewis uh Morno, one of your favorite directors, Glenn. Yes. uh the man Heck responsible yes. for Bats uh-huh. 2. <laughs> yes. Uh, he also wrote, I believe, Carnosaur 2. or did you know? He directed Carnosaur 2 and Roadkill 2. So he's done a lot of he's done a lot of uh what I'm, assu- I'm assuming uh Straight to video sequels. I'm surprised he didn't do bats too.
4: <laughs> I'm surprised I haven't got any of his films on my wall of twos.
5: On your, of your sequels, there's still time, Glenn. You can always uh, print more up. Pull down a couple of those, and replace them. Replace uh, them? Don't you mean add to them? Add to them. That's right. Extend the wall. Go around the corner. <laughs> Take the corner. Um. So this film. Uh, it stars James Belushi, and I think this was like a bit of a kind of a uh, a revelation for Belushi because I think it's the first time he's, he plays a villain, mm. uh, which and he, he is excellent as it. Who who would have thought that uh, King of Comedy James Belushi would be great as an arsehole When all reports about what the kind what he is like in real life, uh, <laughs> to the contrary, he's like apparently like a lovely man. That's not true. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
7: I
4: almost almost landed an interview with him uh, several years ago.
5: Well, I'm just dashed all of those hopes right now. <laughs> That's okay. Probably, uh, the rumors are that he's a complete asshole. But uh Well, it didn't happen, is, did it? It didn't happen, no. Because he's an asshole. <laughs> he does have a great bit in Joe Somebody. Where he he's basically playing Steven Segal and he says the problem is when he was successful, he was a complete arsehole. And then all of a sudden he stopped being successful. No one <laughs> no one wanted to help him because he was such an arsehole. And I'm like, he's like he's talking about himself. It's a great bit. But in this film, this film it stars Kylie Travis, and she's a like a hostage negotiator who is uh who's uh, left I, I don't know what city she's in, maybe LA or something. She's headed off into the desert uh, in America after a botched hostage negotiation where um, a couple of people got killed. She heads off into the desert and her car breaks down because she's having flashbacks. And when, as you know, in movies, when people have flashbacks, uh, they crash their cars. Mm -hmm. That's they, they for some reason, they, it it completely takes them out of reality. (laughs) So she she crashes her car and uh, Jim Belushi, James Belushi, um, and his wife, uh, played by Sharon Worry. One of the few, and it's a great role for Sharon Worry, one of the few movies where she doesn't get very, very naked <laughs> and have lots of lots of uh, sex in erotic thrillers, this is one of the few non-erotic thrillers I think that Sharon Worry has starred in. Um they pick her up, and uh, what she doesn't know is that James Belugie has just uh conspired to steal a bunch of microchips and is um currently on his way to meet uh character actor favorite of the show mm at walsh uh, at a uh at a kind of a desert roadside uh, petrol station kind of thing and uh along the way kind of things happen and uh i think james belushi finds out that his wife is maybe having an affair and he goes a bit nuts and kills her and uh tries to kill Kylie Travis, but she manages to escape and she runs off into the desert where she finds this uh, lab, this um, you know, remote government laboratory uh, staffed by none other than Career Opportunity own Frank Wiley, <laughs> who in this movie is playing a scientist who has invented a machine that can send you back 30 minutes in time. And you're the only person who knows that you've gone back 30 minutes. Everyone else, uh, even including him at the, at the, at the lab doesn't know that. And, uh, and she's, you know, she's still being pursued by James Belushi. He sends her back in time accidentally and she finds herself back just having got in the car with James Belushi and she gets to try and and change history and it does it kind of becomes a bit like a Groundhog day Mm -hmm. kind of thing uh or more like that tv series um daylight if you remember that
4: now i I don't want to be i don't want to be the guy that sort of goes oh you know there's a time travel there's laws and all this kind of stuff with it but okay so he sends people back 30 minutes and you said that even he doesn't know that they've been sent back 30 minutes prior so, but yeah, surely it it's only been yet. 30 minutes. So he, he came up with the technology. So surely he knows he's going to do it.
5: Well, no, because, well, at the start of the film, he's trying it on with it. It's they've shut the lab down. He's the, he's there just right towards the end intent on proving the, um, the, whoever was funding the whole thing. You assume it's the government, but who, who knows? It, they don't, they don't explain it. Um, because at the, at, up until that point, it hadn't worked.
4: So what you're saying is 30 minutes prior to him actually doing it, he didn't actually have any knowledge, preconceived knowledge that he was about to do it to the guy.
5: <laughs> no, no. He, because, how can I explain this? She, okay. I'll just she, watch it. You just watch it. She knocks on the door. He He's not expecting someone to come in. She answers it. James Belushi also kind of follows, follows him in. And there's a okay. bit of a fight. Frank Wiley accidentally bumps into the computer that sets Got off it. the thing, then it happens and she gets, and it's, it has up until that point, I think it may have had just worked with a rat, yep. but it was like the, like literally the first time no. that it had kind yeah. of completely get it happened, now. So, completely
4: yeah. get it. So it was all a, a, like a, a comedy of errors that took place beforehand or whatever. Yeah. yeah. What, yeah. Whatever. Sorry to just completely de- <laughs> Rail your
5: fucking. I feel like I've done this movie a disservice. No, you haven't, because
4: much. like you've got me completely curious. It's the only film of this director clearly that I haven't seen. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm interested and I, I like these
5: kind of movies. I have to say, like, I was taught, talk- it's come up in conversation with a couple of other people. Uh, and they recommended it to me. And I was, I remember the DVD cover, I remember the VHS cover or whatever it was, 97 would be VHS when it came out uh, here. And I was always like, I mean, I remember Kylie Travis, but she was like the kind of the one I was least interested in from Models Inc., like considering that Carrie Ann Moss came out of Models Inc. and Teresa Hill, uh, and Linda Gray and stuff like Kylie Travis was always like the yeah. I'm you know, is is she gonna have a career? Why would she have a career after this? Like, this show is pretty bad. Uh, and there 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 were much more worthy actresses in, in that show. I'm sorry to say. Mm-hmm. But after watching this, I'm like, it's such a shame that Kylie Travis didn't have a much bigger career because she is excellent in this and this and they recommended it and i was always kind of i can't run i'm really sure and so i used this show as an excuse to watch it fantastic because it it had been so highly recommended and it was it was just awesome Awesome. i'm looking at the um
4: the australian vhs cover now and the tagline has changing the past can be murder
5: yeah, and I think it's it's like it's almost like another day in paradise kind of poster with James Belushi in a car. Yeah.
4: Yep. But um, excellent. I am definitely going to add that to my list, and maybe uh over the next few days catch that one. So thank you, sir. I'm going to make mine real quick. I've got a a banger of a remake. One of my favorite remakes. It's from 1996, and it's Ransom, uh, directed by Ron Howard. Uh, and how is this for a cast? You have got Mel Gibson in the lead, Renee Russo. Gary Sinise, Liev Schreiber, Delroy Lindo, Lily Taylor, Donnie Wahlberg, um, Dan Hayeda, or Hedja, I don't know how to pronounce his name, nor do I know how to pronounce Paul, Paul Guilfoyle's <laughs> name. Hedja. Yeah. Dan Hedja. Dan Hedja. Paul Guilfoyle, is that right? Guilfoyle. Guilfoyle, Gil- yeah. <laughs> okay, John Ortiz, I got that Gilfoyle. right. Guilfoyle! <laughs> But this is uh, the second remake that this, uh, this story has had. It was originally an episode of a show called The United States Steel Hour from 1954. And then it was remade in 1956 with Glenn Ford and Donna Reed and a young Leslie Nielsen. So this one sort of had been in Hollywood for a while. But uh, this is um, 1996. It's a beauty. It's about a millionaire who's, or a multimillionaire, whose son is kidnapped in Central Park and held for ransom. And the story intensifies when Mel Gibson's character fronts up on the nightly news with the ransom laid out in front of him and declares down the barrel of the camera live on air that he refuses to pay the ransom. Instead, he offers the money as a bounty for anyone who dobs in the kidnappers, which is a fantastic concept. And the movie is really taut. Like, it is a fairly long movie, and 90s thrillers had a tendency to go over over their mark by about 10 to 15 minutes. So this film could have been a bit shorter, but nevertheless, I think it's one of my top five Mel Gibson performances. I think he's outstanding in this one.
5: And it was a re teaming It was a re-teaming of Rene Russo and Mel Gibson totally. after Lethal 3.
4: Yes. It's great. It's a good film. Um particularly those moments when the the child disappears and panic sets in like it's
5: really, really well directed. And as 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 the customer that you mentioned earlier would come in and tell me there is there is a, a pissing scene in this uh, in this film. Oh,
4: it's not a nice a, one though. A pivotal,
5: a pivotal, it's a pivotal pissing scene. Yeah,
4: not not a not a not a pleasant one. No, it's not, <laughs> I don't think
5: it's the kind that he was interested in either. But he, just, he would bring it up because he would constantly talk about which films had been cut, and he's like, "Why? Why didn't they cut the pissing scene from Ransom? That's what I want to know." Okay, <laughs> if I lend you two dollars, will you leave the shop? <laughs> Keep it. <laughs> yeah, but You'd no. You wouldn't have to have a spare change, would you? Well, talk about uh, talk about that pissing scene in the uh, house, house, last house on the left. Uh, that They cut ransom. From the Australian release. Ransom. No, is, I'm trying oh. to get back to ransom.
4: <laughs> it is a good movie. Mel Gibson was sort of this is real prime Mel Gibson for me. I like this nineties era Mel. Um, but anyway, so thank you, sir, for yours. That there was mine, and now is um normally where I would throw over to Chloe. Uh, with her favorite mainstream recommendation, but due to some unavoidable work commitments that uh, she has no control over, she won't be with us for the next few weeks. So instead, I'm going to run a couple of, uh, I guess, clips from her own podcast. So Movie Night with the Richie Girls, this one's a bit of an introduction. and uh... I,
5: do, I do like it how you say mainstream, her mainstream, and we've just literally been talking about Ransom and uh, <laughs> Sneakers. <laughs> like too obscure. Uh, <laughs> well look you've got to admit on the show we're usually very obscure with
4: our movies and, and and her and Adam come in with the mainstream stuff.
5: Yeah well I think I think it's it's more that we're talking about films from uh, a couple of decades ago <laughs> whereas they're talking about movies from now but they're not exactly uh, they're not exactly like indie darlings that no one's you you would only have seen ransom if you attended the 1996 uh, Tribeca Film Festival. <laughs> It's a shame it never got a release after that. Well, anyway, <laughs> here is a taste
4: of what Chloe does on her podcast, and uh, we'll catch you on the other side.
9: Anyway, welcome to Movie Night, guys. Um, this is our podcast, our mother and daughter podcast. Yeah, because we weren't together enough. <laughs> well, we <laughs> it haven't, seems we haven't been together for a while now. Yeah. So we've um, bloody COVID been separated. No, not just COVID, but kids as well. Kids, COVID. kids, COVID, work. You know, husbands life life. You know, it's been a while since it's been just you and me, so this should be nice. We need a mummy daughter holiday. Pope this is this is Pope like a holiday. Oh
8: bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Come, Come on. Bullshit.
9: Come on. <laughs> we need a post COVID pampering holiday together somewhere. Yeah, I think that sounds nice. Yeah. Yep. And we can even rewatch some of our favourite movies on our post-COVID holiday, like what we're doing here on the podcast. Yeah. Yes. We can make a list like we're doing here and we can re-watch and we can have fun and talk and chat and discuss. Drink wine, drink wine. Like yeah, I am yeah. We're gonna be needing the wine. Yeah. Definitely need the wine. I'll today. bring that. I just won't bring the red for you. I'll bring the red for me, but not for you. I'll have the white. Okay. Or like a Canadian club or something, because I'm not really a wine drinker. Okay. Anyway. You like to whine, though. I do like to whine. <laughs> I'm not a whiner. You learn from but the But I best. do like to whine. You learn from the best. <laughs> I'm really good at it. And, and something my that you always taught me is that if you're going to do something, do it properly. Yeah. So yep. I use that saying almost daily. Yes. <laughs> okay. Sniff yep. Sniffing the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> Anyway, oh um, it's been a while since we've been able to spend some time like this. So we're going to we're gonna get together once a week. We're going to chat about some of our favourite movies that we that we used to watch together. Talk it. Tidbit it. Break it down. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I'm so good at this podcasting stuff. Can you let my pussy out of the room? Oh my god. Hey, please. <laughs> Hang on. Oh, he's just... Um, Letting letting the uh, pussy exit from the bedroom. The sound... uh, the recording studio. Sorry. (laughs) Let's be professional. Pussy in my food and I won't touch it.
4: (laughs) So before uh, Chloe had to step away for a few weeks, she was going to cover seven, but just as well, because we've talked about that (laughs) quite a bit already. Um, Seven definitely kicked off a slew of copycat movies in the nineties. Like I'm thinking the bone collector and the watcher and taking lives and well, taking Lives is probably two thousands, but you know what I mean? It just sort of this whole flood of movies came out, particularly, you know what I'm going to say, don't you resurrection? Mm-hmm. <laughs> any, any opportunity to mention Russell Mulcahy's resurrection starring Christopher Lambert.
5: I will do so. You've taken, you've taken that opportunity on more than one occasion And uh, I still haven't seen it. (laughs) Well, get on it, mister.
4: Uh, But now, how about our final recommendations? Uh, So, take some notes, people, because if you haven't seen The Good Son from 1993, then rectify that immediately. I I love this, this one. This is one of those movies I was talking about that sort of flowed over from the 80s. It feels like an 80s thriller, even though it was 90s. And I vividly remember seeing this one at the cinema. I was 14 years old and it blew me away. And I think at that age, I was savvy enough to, I guess, recognize the influences that this one sort of came from, i.e. those 80s movies. And uh, this one felt like, to me, fatal attraction with kids for some reason, kind of has that tone. But it starts it stars a very young Elijah Wood and Macaulay Culkin, and it's about an evil kid whose parents die under mysterious circumstances, and he then goes to live with his auntie and uncle, and then he begins to corrupt his cousin into some bad behaviour, which is gloriously bad as well. It's like some really awesome stuff in this film. Uh, like I said, it's edgy. Probably You probably couldn't make it today. Like You just wouldn't get away with this kind of thing, and... There's a scene which I think you know I'm going to talk about with the freeway where they they throw like a a dummy over the edge of an overpass onto the road and cause like a massive you know multi car pileup. It's just yeah. It's it's kind of I remember even as a kid watching this. Well, 14, thinking to myself, you know, there's a lot of kids that might copy this. <laughs> <laughs> and so you did. They're giving they're giving kids some pretty evil ideas here. And, yeah. and with...
5: Considering that they had to issue public service announcements for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because kids were going to play in sewers and drowning.
4: <laughs> well, there was controversy at this one too, not just because it was Macaulay Culkin playing the evil kid having come off you know Home Alone and a, a few other movies, but just the fact that these were little kids doing really bad things. You know, there was a real concern at the time. I don't remember if this came before or after the James Bolger case I'm guessing it came after or before because this was never dragged into question when they were talking about the influence of the of those kids but nevertheless it was directed by Joseph Rubin who previously made the stepfather and sleeping with the enemy so he kind of had his um his dabble in the genre previously and he went on to make money train and uh, a movie with Michael Douglas um, probably ten years ago called Penthouse North, which was pretty good too. so
5: anyway. I thought you were gonna say The Game, which is a movie that I almost talked about.
4: Oh, the David it's, Fincher film.
5: The David Fincher film, yeah. Oh, a, which I forgot it was David Fincher. Oh, so. <laughs> well, that's a good one though. It's a great film.
4: Yes. Uh that's me done. Good son. I reckon everyone should go and track it down because it's just one of those surprise films at the time. It sort of took an adult genre and just put innocent well, not innocent, but put kids into it.
5: It's like a kinder I remember it was around the same time as what Hand That Rocks the Cradle yes. and a lot of kind of filming kids in Jeopardy. My yeah, my yeah.
4: Mikey had the same poster as
5: um, "Hand That Rocks the Cradle." Yeah, right. I didn't. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, hang on. Not Mikey, the one I'm thinking of. Mikey with Michael J. Fox. No, the we're, the Andrew Bosley, the Bosley one.
4: Agent. Oh no, what's his name? Brian Bosley from Family Ties played the evil kid, and it had oh really? John no, John, I, yeah. John Daly or J- is that his name? The guy from
5: Kickboxer Two. Yeah, now you you've lost me. Oh, okay. <laughs> So what's what's the one with Michael J. Fox where he's the kid's talent agent? Isn't that Mikey as well? Yeah, <laughs> that's a bit of a leap. If you think get... <laughs> about the good son and Mikey, it's, the it's like I'm pretty sure one's a life
4: with Mikey. A kind of
5: heartfelt kids family film. <laughs> life with Mikey. <laughs> the other one, life with Mikey. Right. <laughs> It'd be great. Oh, what a double though: the good son and life with Mikey, or Mikey and life with Mikey. Definitely. <laughs> That'd be a great double. Anyway, save us from this sinking ship. <laughs> the the, the, uh, the segue that wouldn't end. No, the tangent. The tangent that wouldn't end. Uh, okay, so I'm uh, my last film is from 1998. So this is the uh, the towards the close of the decade. Uh, directed by my favourite director, only because he's I think he's got the coolest name. <laughs> Uh, Volker, Volker Schlondorf. <laughs> what, a, what a fantastic name. Uh, he's the guy who directed Tin Drum. I think that was his kind of big thing. But in 1998, he made a, a little thriller by na- by the name of Palmetto.
4: Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, it's interesting. Pretty- b- before you go on, it's interesting that you picked this one simply because it was on my list of films to cover because when I was looking up 90s thrillers, it came up. and I'm like, ooh, I forgot all about that. I just forgot it existed yeah. entirely, and then I thought, "Have I got time to
5: revisit?" Probably not. <laughs> well, I did. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I did have time to because my the the memory that kind of stands out for me in this. this I should maybe I'll i explain about the film first. So it's based on a book by James Headley Chase, uh, who's a British author who did a lot of kind of uh, uh, kind of pulp pulp novels, uh, and this was uh, the book was called Just Another Sucker. Uh, and it stars Woody Harrelson as this, uh, in the start of the film, he gets out of, he's getting out of prison. He was a reporter who refused to take a bribe and, uh, a bunch of corrupt officials had him imprisoned. Uh, uh, but then, uh, two years later, things come out and he gets exonerated and released mm-hmm. and, uh, he's kind of looking for work. He can't really find work. Uh, And then he meets Elizabeth Shue in a bar. And Elizabeth Shue basically claims to be uh, the wife of this very rich man. And she and the rich man's daughter, her stepdaughter, uh, want to fake a kidnapping, Mm -hmm. the kidnapping of the daughter, in order to extort a bunch of money from the dad who is uh, a bit tight and won't allow them to continue living the lifestyle to which they've grown accustomed to. And of course, things go wrong, and there's twist after twist, and uh, you know you have to watch the movie to figure out. To, to, <laughs> for, I don't want to give anything else so I don't want to ruin anything. But so it's, it's Woody Harrison, Elizabeth Shue, and Elizabeth Shue in this movie. Like Woody Harrison is like catnip to the ladies in this film. <laughs> Every woman that comes into his orbit immediately develop the horn to the nth degree and need to jump his bones. <laughs> it's amazing like he gets out of prison and his old girlfriend Gina Gershon is there to uh to meet him she practically jumps him in the middle of the road <laughs> uh then uh, yeah so then he meets Elizabeth Shue, who uh he sleeps with then uh, Chloe Chloe Sevigny plays the uh the daughter mm-hmm. she bangs him <laughs> Like, it's like they all, like, he's in bed with everyone in this film, and it is, it's great. It's a very kind of, it's they they I think they're in the Florida kind of, in the Florida Keys. I remember kind being a area. very hot, sweaty movie. Everyone's sweaty, which is usually is a big turnoff for me. I don't like I don't like movies like Strange Days. I refused to watch Strange Days for years because <laughs> I thought Ray Find looked too sweaty in the trailer. Gonna <laughs> make me feel uncomfortable. Um, Michael Rappaport, a very young Michael Rappaport shows up in this, and he's great uh i think uh, tom wright plays the cop and mark mccauley plays his boss like he he does eventually even though while all this while this fake kidnapping is going on he manages to to get a job at the da's office as the press liaison uh funnily enough because they kind of feel that's their kind of what by way of apologizing for the uh for imprisoning for two years uh, unjustly um and mark mccauley plays his boss and mark mccauley is one of these weird actors that you would have seen in like a hundred tv shows in almost most of the time either one or two lines or no lines kind of dialogue and in this he's got quite a like a kind of a media part but you just i just i keep watching this guy like how is he how is he getting work (laughs) like who's hiring this guy like it's not that he's bad he's just he's just weird and i don't get it i don't understand how he gets jobs but anyway, he's in this one. Uh, and he's pretty funny, kind of funny. The, the movie does have its, like, share of problems, and it's mainly in the cops. Mm. like Because, you know, the cops do get involved. There's a couple of twists. And the stuff that the cops kind of do, and it becomes, after a while, it becomes really clear that Woody Harrelson is somehow involved, mm. even though he's, you know, kind of helping out with the investigation. And they make several references to it, but there's... <laughs> There's clearly some stuff where you're like any any cop would be like, hmm, what's going on? This something's weird. Like like I know it's hot here, but you're extra sweaty all the time.
4: Especially if it was James L. Jones, because he's one pissed off motherfucker
5: cop. Yeah, so it's, it's unfortunate that James L. Jones isn't in this film.
4: <laughs> He'd make a like, great sweaty, missing, sweaty cop, yeah. That, that,
5: that takes Palmetto from a from a from a good film to an excellent
4: film. <laughs> and what's that director's name again?
5: Volker Schlondorf. <laughs> such a great name but he's definitely worth it's definitely worth checking out palmetto uh like i've never like elizabeth shue she i'd say she gives a bit of an off kilter performance in this she's like she is she sometimes she's she's at a 3 and sometimes <laughs> she's at a 15 she's like all over the map and it is it's quite entertaining to watch especially during the, the seduction scenes <laughs> she, she bangs like the, the, there's something to see like it is, it's a pretty special film and definitely worth uh checking out. Funnily enough, I've got the DVD, but it's a, it's one of those the snapper case, the cardboard kind of with the yeah, I plastic hate those. Candy. Uh, and it was the I, I literally had to go out and find a bunch of other uh movies on that same form on that same case just so my copy of Palmetto would not be alone on the shelf.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I've got quite a lot of those. That was that was very uh early 2000s.
5: <laughs> yeah the, the, the early days of DVD Where they were trying to do something different
4: Yes, well From uh, Volker Schlongdorf to Adam Ross uh, <laughs> Here we
2: go <laughs> The two best
5: names in the business
2: Hey guys, it's Adam here from Adam's Just Scene And Triple M with another good Movie Monday recommendation This week we are doing Thrillers of the 90s And I have picked Cape Fear As my thriller from the 90s. This thriller is directed by a filmmaker who I think is the world's greatest living director, and that is Mr. Martin Scorsese. Now when this film was released, it didn't get the accolades that I believe that it deserved. And if you to look at its Rotten Tomatoes score, its Metacritic score, it's not reflective of what a masterpiece this film is. And I think that those middling reviews upon release were because people thought that Scorsese was dabbling in genre, that he was lowering himself. But I reckon that the opposite is true. This is Martin Scorsese elevating genre. He is bringing here his skill set, which is unmatched. And he's, you know, populating this film with so many visual flourishes that it makes it just straight up iconic. I mean, this movie is pure cinema. It bleeds on the screen. Effectively a remake, Wesley Strick here has created so many clever twists and turns that there's nothing stale about his take on the material here whatsoever. And so this story of a man who will not give up that will not stop terrorizing this family until he has exacted his sense of justice, means that it sits in the pantheon of all-time great thrillers. Nick Nolte here is so good as Sam Bowden, and he is this great counterpoint to the energy of Robert De Niro as Max Cady, uh, an antagonist who's the most antagonistic antagonist of all of cinema. And De Niro has been known for going to extremes, and here he's doing it once again from the ground down teeth The terrifying jailhouse tats to his absolutely shredded physique he is this demonic presence um, and he just you know can barely be matched in villains in cinema history and Jessica Lange is fantastic here as she always is and Juliette Lewis is really arriving in this movie I think that a lot of people sat up and paid attention to her after her performance in this yes this is Scorsese emulating Hitchcock but what an incredible combination from its Saul Bass credit sequence to its Bernard Hermit score like this straight away it gets into your brain it rattles your cage it shakes you um, it's a really nasty piece of work you know I mean Scorsese here is giving that edge to what could be a studio thriller and you know Scorsese's movies have constantly never pulled their punches and this is another one that will get completely under your skin so if you think that this might be like a lower Scorsese entry, or you've somehow missed it, get on to Cape Fear. It is as good a thrill as thrillers get, and an absolute masterclass of filmmaking from Marty, and a five-star thriller from me.
4: Jesus Christ, I'd I'd forgotten all about Cape Fear, but um, what an absolute corker! You know, I didn't that didn't even come up on my list when I was scrolling through movies that are you know to possibly
5: talk about. No, I don't remember coming up on the like you yeah, know you always for in preparation for the show, I always just type in whatever the show's topic is. I type <laughs> it into Google just to see what comes up yep. To, yep. as a, as a memory jogger, yes. like as a first, yes. as a first port of call. And I don't recall seeing Cape Fear on any list and, cons- you know, considering how good of a film it is, yes, exactly. Like it's, how big of a it's film so it was.
4: obvious and it just didn't occur to me, but I'll tell you what, some, yeah. some trivia about um, Cape Fear that Adam didn't mention is that that was originally going to be directed by Spielberg.
5: I can't imagine that.
4: (laughs) Exactly, but the thing is that Martin Scorsese had Schindler's List to make and didn't have the confidence to do it, so they swapped.
5: Yeah, well, I I mean, (laughs) I mean, prior prior to seeing Schindler's List, I wouldn't have thought that Spielberg had had enough had had the juice to make that either. But definitely, like, not the edge to make Cape Fear like that's definitely more of a Scorsese type.
4: Yeah. Film. Well, that's the thing is that Spielberg is a, is a producer on Cape Fear, but just removed his name from the credits. And I think it still is an emblem title if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, it's right. um, it's a great one. So thank you, Adam. Very, very good stuff. Uh, some other good ones. Uh, we already mentioned hand that rocks the cradle, but the negotiator was one that came to my mind. I really like that one.
5: I love it. I love that film. It's so good. It is,
4: but what are, like
5: it's the best of Samuel L. Jackson and the best of Kevin Spacey, and they work so well. Like, you know, they're so they're they're two kind of actors who are able to play really cool characters, and then they're both playing cool characters in the same and they're the same character. Yeah. They're basically the same. They got the same job, and it's just it's almost like watching two actors play the same part <laughs> in different styles. It just works really well. I thoroughly. Like really enjoy the negotiate.
4: I do too. And what I used, what I thought when I first saw that film, and I, I'm probably way off the mark, but I thought this is like the perfect blending of Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. Like it's right in there somewhere. Mm. Um, obviously, it's a bit darker than both of those. But also, Poison Ivy. That was 90s.
5: Yeah, what's his yeah. name was cut out of that. Yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio was cut out of uh, Poison Ivy. Just wow. a bit of trivia there. He was in it. It was one of his. It was. His, it was actually his first. First film role, and he was cut out of it. This before *Critters* three, before I think it was before *Critters* three. I think yeah,
4: that's probably why they cut him out. Maybe, maybe he'd filmed *Critters* three, and they saw that, and they went, "Fuck, me, you're out."
5: <laughs> <laughs> but
4: um *Thunderheart* Thunderheart's a good one.
5: Oh, uh, I, the... I like *Thunderheart*. There's a lot of those. Isn't *Kill Me Again* as well? Val Kilmer had a couple of good thrillers.
4: Yes, Um *Dead Again* and *River Wild*. There's some really good ones. I
5: did, I did not like *Dead Again*. I th- yeah. I. I I found it such an odd movie. Like everyone in it is British and they're all doing really bad American accents.
4: I knew you didn't like this one. I think we mentioned it before, but um, I do. I, I, but maybe I haven't seen it in a long time. I just remember loving it. I used to watch it a lot on VHS back in the day.
5: Yeah. Um, it's the first movie I've ever seen where Campbell Scott got, got to play a tough, a heavy Campbell Scott. You know, a hundred percent George C. Scott could play a heavy Campbell Scott. Never it never occurred to me that, that he could play that role. But he does he actually true. he's one of the best best kind of he's got one of the best cameos in that film.
4: For sure. Nick of Time's another good one. That was kind of before 24 came along and it was a real time kind of thriller.
5: Yeah, that was great. Charles, it was the first movie that I ever really kind of noticed, Charles S. Dutton. And I'm like, this guy's great. It was <laughs> yeah. in Detox that we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yep.
4: Which that is getting a Blu-ray release through Umbrella. What are the odds? There you go. Under the other title.
5: I see you. Or I see you. Why are they doing yeah. that? Detox, man. Detox. Yeah, I know. They're, in, they're there to detox. <laughs> that's what they're there for. It makes sense. It's the perfectly appropriate title. Well, that practically
4: brings us to the end of the show. And uh, look, I, I just got to say that I just feel completely chuffed that I got to chat with Bruce Beresford. Like, that's the only reason we're really doing this show today.
5: <laughs> just to say, nah, nah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There have we've, we've, there are a lot more flimsier reasons that we've done,
4: <laughs> but yeah, it is a pinch pinch me kind of moment, and um, I just I'm glad he took my call. But Double Jeopardy is being released onto Blu-ray through Viavision. In September on the 15th, now, it was originally going to be much earlier, which is why we scheduled the show for this week, and we just thought rather than shift things around, we'll keep this date, and you guys can just look forward to it, put it in your diaries, September 15th. It's a, I'd already it's a watched one. the films.
5: I'd already watched the films that we are going to talk about, and I didn't want to watch the films that we were going to have to talk about if we <laughs> switch the episode.
4: <laughs> the, that too.
5: <laughs> and it, it chances are that it would, we would switch switched it to the wrong thing anyway. Because I think even that episode ended up having to get switched around. So,
4: And of course, we are the podcast where we don't know what the fuck we're doing uh, on any given time. <laughs> <laughs> but we seem to do it nevertheless. But a uh, big thanks to our friends and weekly contributors. you got Jared Guillermo. Chad, Joe, James, um, we've got Adam and Chloe, of course, who's away at the moment, and Tia, can't forget Tia, works behind the scenes with us on social media. And, of course, thanks to Samantha. We don't thank her on the show quite enough. Um, She's a regular guest on the show, but she does sit in with most of our midweek videos, so big thank you to her as well. And don't forget to check those videos out on our social media pages this coming week. And, of course, goodmoviemonday.com is where all of our back catalogue are. Everything videos podcasts giveaways all that stuff thanks to you ben thank so, you it's been uh
5: being being good do you have any part in words uh just that it is true if you get arrested and imprisoned for a crime and then are freed you can go and commit that crime because you cannot be charged again it is a double jeopardy is that
4: applicable in Australia?
5: Not at all. I don't even think it works in America. <laughs> I think, I think it's...
4: <laughs> that clause does exist, but it's not for that
5: purpose. Yeah, it's not for that purpose. Yeah, no. So don't listen to me. That's probably, pretty much my parting note is do not listen to anything I say. Like seek, <laughs> That's right. seek independent legal counsel before <laughs> trying to commit acts that you were wrongfully imprisoned for.
4: And um, Or you could talk to Barry B. He can probably you know word you up.
5: <clears throat> yeah. Bazzi <As> B. <laughs> Brucey, Brucey now, B, Brucey B, Brucey, oh, Brucey B, Brucey what did I B. Say?
4: Did I say Barry? Uh,
5: I yeah, I think you said Barry. Barry B. Jesus. It's Brucey Jesus
4: B. Christ. It is Brucey B.
5: You
4: know that mate of mine.
5: It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a married with children. When the hat's this way, I'm film director Bruce Beresford. When the hat is this way, <laughs> I'm, I'm Grandmaster Brucey B. <laughs> Said hip, hop, hip to the hip and the hip, hip,
4: hop until start the buggy.
5: All he does is is uh, Sugar Hill gang covers.
4: <laughs> Speaking of Sugar hell, Hill gang covers, uh, this is not one of them. <laughs> we do like to sign off with a song every single week and this one is from Russell Mulcahy's 1991 film, Ricochet, starring Denzel Washington
5: and John Lithgow. Is this the one where he... No, it's not Ricochet. I keep getting Ricochet and the Rookie mixed up. One of them One of them, someone gets raped by Sonia Braga. But that's not this. That's not this.
4: It is automatic by the Pointer Sisters. So pull up those leg warmers for this one. I know Ben's already got them up to his thigh.
5: I I wear them under my (laughs) jeans at all times because you never know when you're going to have to bust out a grapevine.
4: Have a great week, everybody. Enjoy the lockdown for what it's worth. And uh, (laughs) we hope today's show's lifted your mood a little bit. We'll catch you next week.